Hello, First Family. Glad to see you guys. Let me start by saying thank you for your numerous expressions of sympathy for the loss of my sister. You know, many of you came to me and said, Darren, we didn't even know she was sick. That wasn't accidental. For as much as I live my life out there, my sister was my logical opposite. She played everything right here and liked it that way. We've known for quite some time that the sickness that killed her actually was headed that way. The doctor told us in April she had six months to live, and he was right by just a few days, really. We praise the Lord, though, that she isn't sick anymore. My sister was a very strong and independent lady. To see her as she was on the Friday before she passed was difficult at best. I ask that you pray for us and for uh, my, my, her, her husband and my dad through this time. It's been a difficult season for all of us, but especially them. And pray that the Lord will honor the service that she started. Her happiest days were as associate dean of nursing at Baylor. She loved that school. She loved teaching. And quite frankly, it's what she was made for. If I may be so bold, it's what she was created for. Can I tell you today, friends, we are honored today that I am honored that I got the chance to have a front row seat to the journey that she walked. It was too short. She was 53 when she passed. But the Lord has given her a new body, one not stricken with cancer, one that greeted, was greeted by our mother, who was her twin in every sense. And uh, let us praise the Lord that what I told her Friday when I left will still be true. I'll see you in the morning. Let us also pray a prayer of gratitude. My sister was also a veteran, and today we honor veterans. We honor those of you who served. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say a word of gratitude as the grandson of a veteran, the son of a veteran, the brother of a veteran. Thank you for your service. Veterans, would you please stand and let us honor you today? We would be grateful for your, your standing. Thank you. Thank you, friends. It seems that once a year is not enough to honor the sacrifice and service that you rendered, and yet we choose to do that today. We also remember today that it is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. There are churches all over the world that don't have the freedom to gather like we are this morning. We would do well to remember them, to pray for them, the book of Hebrews calls us to remember them and pray for them as if we ourselves were with them because in the sense that we are all one in the body of Christ, indeed we are. I ask that you pray for the persecuted church today. And finally, let us pray for our nation. This week is also election day. It is not my place to tell you how to vote, but I will tell you the Bible should be your guide for how to vote. Let it give you leadership for who to vote for. My prayer is that our nation will come together before we come apart, and that God will use this week to begin to accomplish that very purpose. I want us to pray before we dive into what Revelation 18 says. 
for all of these things we've mentioned and for God's mercy over our future. Let's pray together, church. We thank you today, Lord, for a life well lived in my sister. I pray your blessings over all of our family. And I thank you for this, my church family, who has loved us well through this time. We pray, Lord, a blessing over each of these, our veterans, those who stood and those who didn't, and those who are in our, in our community and those who are not. Let them know of our gratitude, Lord Jesus, of our gratitude for their sacrifice, for their service, of our gratitude for the freedoms that they serve to protect. And I thank you, Lord, for those who are actively serving right now. Protect them, guard them, shelter them. I thank you, Lord, that you are using their lives. Bless them today, Father, wherever they might be. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church. We know, Lord Jesus, that you are just as sovereign and powerful over their lives as you are over ours. I pray your protection over them. I pray, God, for your provision for them. We pray also, Lord, for our nation. We remember today, Lord, that election day is the day after tomorrow. We know, Lord, because we've been bombarded by direct mailers and television ads. I thank you, Lord, that this season is drawing to a close. But I thank you also, Lord, that you've already got this sewn up. You know who will win, for this kingdom is yours too. I pray, Lord, for your peace over our nation. I pray for healing. I pray for unity. I pray for an end to the angry and divisive words. And I pray, God, that you would let your kingdom be made known right here. Do your work, Lord, in, through, in and through your word this morning. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for putting us together as a family. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, today we are in the last section of bad news in Revelation. It'll take us two Sundays to cover it. But we're in the last section, the home stretch, you might say, of where things are difficult, where there is a challenge, and where it is dark. When we get to Revelation 18, we find ourselves at the end. I wonder if you have ever had an experience like this. You get into a car with someone, and you believe faithfully that they know where they're going. And then after you've ridden a while with them, you realize they don't. A friend of mine, when we lived in Jacksonville, we were going to a football game in Gilmer. If you know how to get there, it's not hard. But being the gracious guy that I was, I got into the car and we took off for Longview. If you know East Texas, that's not how to get there. But I thought, my friend Matt has lived here for 40 years. I'm not going to correct him. We got to Longview, and he said, Darren, do you know how to get there? Now, at this point, I realized, as soon as he said that, I'm not going to get any supper because we don't have time to make the trip and eat. And I looked at him, and I said, why didn't you tell me you didn't know where you were going? I, I thought I did. Well, I'm going to tell you, friends, we are headed toward a certain end, and we know where we're going. The problem is that many around us don't. 
and they're steering their lives toward a definitive crash. When we get to Revelation, 8, Revelation 18, we see what that crash looks like. We know this is where it's headed, friends. We know everything in all of history funnels down to this. So if we believe that earnestly, then let us live that way by sharing this. The Apostle John hears an angel, an angelic announcement condemning Babylon. Oh, it's not news. It's not surprising. We know this is what's coming. It's what was foretold from, from the, the foundations of the world that sin has a price and there will, bring, there will come an end to it and sin will cost. We know that. But when we see it here, it can be a bit hard to take for some. An angelic voice announces bringing an expected condemnation. See it again in verses 1 to 3. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a loud voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean, detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of his passion, of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. We don't know who this angel is. There's been no shortage of speculation. But we know that this is no ordinary angel. Did you see how he was described? One who has great authority. We don't know where he's come from, but we might surmise that it is from the presence of God himself. See that phrase there? He is one who is described as having enough light to light up the whole earth. <laughs> when you see that, I want you to go back to Exodus 19, 20, and 21. When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, having spent time face to face with God. And what is it that was the physical characteristic for Moses? He glowed. The presence of God so soaked into him that he gave off light. So this is an angel doing even better than that. This angel comes with a proclamation. It's one that we've heard from before. Go back to Revelation 14 and you'll see, we're told Babylon's headed for a crash. Go back even further, all the way to Jeremiah 51 and 52. If you're reading along in our Bible reading, you just read that a couple of weeks ago. The prophet then, 400 years before the time of Christ, saw Babylon fall. Here, here in Revelation 18, the final collapse of Babylon comes. Notice that it is doubled, fallen, fallen. When it is doubled that way, it underscores both the finality and the utterness of the destruction. Perhaps, just maybe, this isn't just a collapse of the geopolitical Babylon, but also the Babylon that is a spiritual Babylon. 
In other words, it's not just one fall, it's two. Both crashing in a heap under the weight of God's judgment. Jump forward to chapter 18, verse 6, and you'll see she receives double for her sins. When we see the utterness of this collapse, it ought to send a chill down our spine, not because we ourselves, as the people of God, will endure that, but because the utterness of those outside of Christ will come crashing down. Remember, Babylon has, I'm sorry, Revelation has two purposes. One is a word of warning to those outside of Christ that things will not always be as they are. Prepare accordingly. And the other is a word of encouragement to those in Christ that things will not always be as they are. So live in the joy that you know where you're going. This is the uttermost of a word of warning. Babylon is not a geopolitical place singularly. In other words, if we knew for sure that Babylon as a physical geographical place is where all this evil is going to take place, then we could avoid it, right? And yet, Babylon is sort of a code word. We've talked about this before. It is code for Rome, the city of Rome and the Roman Empire as a whole. Here, I think it's even more broad. Babylon is the secular system of government that is spread out all around the world. It is not one place. It is every place that rejects the sovereignty and power of God. So if you reject God, then you live in Babylon, regardless of where your home is. Babylon is the home of Satan himself. And let's be clear, Babylon has fallen because she has become a home for evil. Did you see what John said there in verse 2? See it again in the middle of the verse. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. <laughs> you know, the original plan was to bring this message to you on the day before Halloween. Seemed about right then, didn't it? When we think of that kind of place, we think of a haunted house. We think of a place where scary things occur, and we think of things where there are unclean animals that will jump out and scare us. That is exactly the description that John provides here in verse 2. Babylon has fallen because she has endorsed and embraced evil, and evil has caused her to lack thriving. She has failed to thrive because she has rejected the source of life itself. Reality is evil will not be hidden forever because it perpetually stains everything that it touches. Don't presume for a moment you can take fire into your lap and not get burned. This is the essence of why Babylon has fallen. Not only that, verse 3 chimes in as well. Babylon has fallen because she is an exporter of evil. See it again in verse 3. For all nations have drunk the wine 
of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. All nations have drunk. The widespread nature of her wickedness will result in not only their brokenness, but hers as well. Because Babylon has polluted the whole world with her wickedness, she will receive the judgment God plans for her wherever she might be. For those of us in Christ, this is exactly why John wrote what he wrote in another one of his letters. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17 says this, Don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, Babylon heard that. It struck their ears, but they didn't listen. Babylon heard the call of Christ and said, no, I'd rather do it my way. Now, that might work for Frank Sinatra, but it won't work for eternity. Can I tell you, my friends, this moment in time where Babylon falls, it's not unexpected, it is not a surprise, it is not unfair, it is not unrighteous of God. It is a warning that he is giving and giving and giving. And people just blow right past those stop signs. They blow right past them as if they don't even apply to them because they'd rather worship themselves. We see it all the time, don't we? People thinking that they can get away with it forever because they always have. I want to warn you today, friends. There is an expiration date. We don't know what it is. It's not printed on the milk jug for us. But we know it's coming. So we have a choice to make about how we will live. Now, I want to give you two things to take home in this first section. They both play into the second section, so it'll echo again when we get to the conclusion of this talk in just a few minutes. Here's the first one. Make purity your priority. Evil does not have to linger at your door. See, reality is that for a lot of us, we like evil. We recognize immorality that is outside of the bounds of Scripture, and yet we don't put it out of our home. In fact, we even pay to have it delivered. Can I tell you today, friends, as long as we keep that evil pet in our home, I can promise you there will be problems. But when we make purity a priority, we'll put that stuff away. We'll push it away from us. That doesn't mean it stays away. Satan will continue to throw it at us. We're bombarded with it on a daily basis. But if I'm going to make purity my priority, then I'm going to be vigilant about protecting my heart and my mind. I'm not going to go seeking evil to devour it, for I know that eventually it will devour me. Make purity my priority. Secondly, invite God's holiness full reign in your life. We sing an invitation song on a regular basis. It's one that you know well, probably. I surrender all. Do you really? 
or are there pieces that you're holding back because you don't trust God with it? Do you really surrender all? What if he asked you to give up something that you really like? The reality is that when we say, I surrender all, we better mean it because that's what God longs for us to do. He longs for us to be transformed. And that brings us to the second half of our section today. God's people must be set apart. Verse 4 through 8. Then I heard another loud voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for our sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid others back, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I'm no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death, mourning, and famine. She'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Here in verse 4, we have an invitation to remember. The invitation is simple. Come away with me. Never has there been a more countercultural invitation offered than this one. Because to come away with God means that you're going to come away from things that are culturally embraced. Things that are accepted and endorsed and even, even worshipped in some sense. Friends, we are living in a time where post-truth is the only truth. Where post-truth is embraced and acknowledged and even, even worshipped. Can I tell you today, friends, we've seen it before. We'll go back to the end of Jeremiah, chapters 50 and 51, and you'll see that the people of God have been there before. It wasn't the Babylonians who were judged in Jeremiah. It was God's people. And why is it that they are judged? Because they refused to separate themselves from evil. It was easier to live with evil than it was to stand against it. And yet when God calls, he calls us apart. The very word holy means set apart, and that's what God calls us to. The response for some will be, well, nobody can really be holy, Darren. I, I understand that, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Perhaps it means that I need to become a part like Abraham did. When Abraham got the call of God in Genesis chapter 12, it was to come apart. When God called Israel away from Egypt, it was to come apart. When we are called today, such as in Romans 16, it is to come apart. When we see it in Romans 12, we are called to come apart and be transformed. When we see it in Ephesians 4, it is called to speak differently by coming apart and having our character changed. I want to give you two reasons, and just two, that the Apostle John says why you should come apart. One, to avoid partaking 
of their sins. We're told the same thing in 1 Timothy 5. In 1 Corinthians 15, 53, the Bible says, bad company corrupts good character. Ephesians 5, 11 commends us to avoid partnership with evil because holiness cannot tolerate sin. Here's the second reason to avoid the plagues coming for Babylon. Just this last Friday, some friends of ours in East Texas were in the path of one of the tornadoes that came through. The home that they've lived in for several decades was wiped out. They were in the storm shelter. They're fine. But their home, their ranch, everything they've ever worked for is gone. The foundation almost sucked clean. If they knew that was coming, if they knew that was on its way and didn't prepare, then they would deserve whatever they had coming. But they did know, and they prepared in advance, and they were ready, and they took the warning seriously, and they sought shelter in the basement. I want to tell you, friends, there are plagues coming for Babylon. I don't want you to be a part of them. I don't want anybody in the middle, and I don't want anybody in Texas, anybody in the world to be a part of them. That's why we proclaim this. See, the people of Babylon, they, they worshiped themselves, their luxuries, their conveniences. She glorified herself, Revelation 18 says. She saw herself as unassailable, forever in charge and forever untouchable. She lived in luxurious splendor. But I want to tell you, friends, her time is coming to an end. Maybe she knows it. Maybe she doesn't. But we do. We do. She believed her pleasure would secure her future, and even if others had to do without, she would be fine. I want you to see verse 8. In a single day, Babylon's fall will be complete and final. Verse 8 in Greek is structured in an unusual sort of way. It is as if things have gotten pushed off of a cliff. Abrupt language is the way that I would describe it. It is harsh and stark, and it's like all of a sudden things are rolling along, and then there's this massive drop off the edge. Swiftly, powerfully, finally, judgment has come. And when it comes, there is no court of appeal. It will be sudden and final. Like a moth eating away, it will be slow at first, but certain just as same. Justice will also be as swift as a lion. In a sudden fall, she will collapse, much to her surprise. No doubt, she will accuse God of unfairness, of God not giving her a proper chance, of God not warning her. I want to tell you today, friends, 
God has been warning for some 2,000 years now. I want to end with two things to take home. One, the calling to come away is still there. That leads us to the second thing. Is your life set apart? This is where it gets personal. Because I can't answer this question for you. No one can. You're the only one who can answer it for yourself. Some people ask me, why do you give your life to this, Darren? Aren't there easier ways to make a living? Oh yeah, I'm sure there are. But there's none more eternal. And that's why we have this talk today. If we know what the end looks like, if we know there's a future that looks like this, if we know where all this is headed and we don't tell people and we don't tell ourselves, then we are no better than anybody else. Can I tell you today, friends, the call that the Apostle John heard to come away, to separate ourselves, to be different, to live our transformed lives in a way that honors Christ even if others don't, is something that we must take seriously. Some will suggest perhaps coming away is not the right thing. How can we, how can we be salt and light and change our, our culture if we come away? I want to end with this. When you're going to build a tall structure, you don't start at the ground. You dig down deep first so that it has rich and strong foundation. You dig deep and you make sure that the foundation is strong. You make sure that it can stand the, the, the test of time. And I want to tell you today, friends, this coming away, it's what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 4. It's what Jesus did in Matthew 26 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Coming away is not a sign of cowardice. It's a sign of desire to make sure I've got my right, life right. So today, I want to ask you, do you have yours? Today, this day, right here and now, is your chance to answer that question. Do I have mine? Is my life set apart? If it's not, here's good news, friends, and it is good news. You can get that right today. Right here in this place, Jesus extends an invitation to you. His invitation is simple. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Where do you do that? How do you do that? You start by coming down and talking to me, one of my staff members as well. We stand to serve you, and today is the day we want to do that. Maybe, just maybe, you've already done that. But your life is still not set apart. You need a reset. Then in your heart, right where you're sitting, here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask God to help you start over. To take a look around in your home and in your life and say, are there things that need to go? Things that need to be cut off because they're leading me away from God, not toward it. Maybe, just maybe, you've already done all that and you need a church home. We would be honored to have you as a part of our family. Come down and talk with us about that.
Maybe you just need to spend some time in prayer. This altar is open for you. These steps are not just a way to get to the platform. They're a place for you to come and pray. Today, this moment, is the day Jesus has given you to come away with him. Pray with me. And so now, Lord Jesus, because of who you are, you have given us the chance to come away with you. I know, Lord, there will be many who won't take you up on that. My heart is that we would. All those who hear this, that we would say, yes, Jesus, I want to come away with you. Not in the sense that we'll hide somewhere, not in the sense that we flee our opportunity to be salt and light, but in the sense that we want to be with you more than we want anything else. I know, Lord Jesus, that this end is coming. So send us out now, Lord Jesus, to those who need to hear it. And for those who need to respond today, Jesus, give them freedom. Break the shackles that Satan would use to hold them where they are. And help us today, Jesus, to know your peace. For we know who is driving us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.